Hey friends, episode 300. Uh, I've never been really that big on celebrating arbitrary milestones. I mean, 300, okay, that's a round number, but is that more special than 216? I, I don't know, I don't know. I think 216 was, was an excellent episode. Hopefully this one is as good, if not better. Um, but it's a milestone of some description because it just means I've stayed in my lane for some significant amount of time and, and kept producing content that I feel is valuable to the world. But primarily my metric has always been, is it embodied? Is it out of the overflow of my own experience? Uh, is it meaningful? Do I have a sense of heart about it? Really? Do I have something to say? Because uh, Switchfoot, their great lyric, if we are adding to the noise, please turn off this song. That has been my my governor around the content that I produce. I will not dare add to the noise. So everything I've said for the last six years has been uh, out of a sense of conviction that I could add value to someone and that it seems that some people have found that valuable over the last um, year since I've started this podcast. So here we are, 300. And uh, it, it might be the last one for a little while. Um, I'm, I'm working on a new project, a new podcast project called Lunch with the One Minute Coach uh, with my best friend Phil. And we've shared a lot of life together. And I think, I think we can produce something really beautiful. And here's the basic concept, right? I've written a book called The One Minute Coach, which is the compilation of 365 60-second sound bites that I originally produced for radio. And of the same idea, do not add to the noise. Uh, make things as simple as possible, but no simpler. Don't repeat yourself. Don't contradict yourself. Um, have you got value to add in a way that can be concise? And so uh, 365 content pieces that still play around the country, still heard by at least half a million people a day, if not more. And uh, that book has been, um, yeah, it's a, it's a great introduction into the personal development space because, um, you know, a lot of my stuff is pretty confronting, not very palatable, insecurity, leverage, fear, <laughs> desire, they're all big, top, big topics. So the value of having a short, sharp, straight to the point, um, ideas all in a very pretty book that was my wife's genius she, she said it has to look pretty it has to be a pretty cover it has to look good on a coffee table as a gift beside someone's bed that's how this works so here's the concept phil my best friend who would say openly that he's not as committed to getting up in the morning and trying to change the world as i am he he knows who i am and he knows who he is and and we're not the same we have lots of similarities, but lots of differences. And so here I am, the, the level of intensity and focus and conviction and wholeheartedness I bring to this stuff, and it's rare. And not many people think the way that I do about the subjects that I talk about. So here he is, a guy who's trying to live his best life, trying to love his family, trying to run his own business, trying to be a good person, trying to be a person of faith, trying to be a good friend, trying to work out money, uh, trying to be healthy what does this stuff have to do for him how does it work in the real world so the concept is that we sit down and we have lunch together and he randomly opens the book to a page and reads one of the 60 second segments and and quizzes me on it 
um, with respect, critiques it. Good for you, Jamin, that you think this, but what does this mean for me? How does this work in the real world? And that he he represents the everyman. He represents the people who are just trying to live their life and trying to do it in a way that is, is not full of suffering and pain and moves them closer to what they want and is life-giving and, and peaceful and meaningful. So uh, the, the natural rapport we have, the, the history we've shared through many different seasons and just who he is and who I am together in the same room chewing the fat on these ideas, um, I think it'll be fun. In fact, I will, I will make the link available to the YouTube pilot that we recorded for a radio station that was interested in this idea and you can see for yourself so uh, warning this the start is a little slow we, we give ourselves the freedom to ease our way into the conversation while eating some delicious uh, thai takeaway vietnamese takeaway actually so uh, that that will be the the focus of my podcasting future for the short term well you know there's potentially 365 episodes there so we'll see how that goes um, and I'm, I'm not ending the unhindered podcast this is still the best platform for me to just swing away and share my heart and i'm sure there'll be people that still find that valuable uh, but be prepared for these episodes to be a bit more sparse moving forward and you can always go back through the back catalog and find that useful catherine's compiled a, a um what's it called index that's the word i'm looking for for all the topics that i've covered so that's uh, useful if you want to get your hands on that reach out to her admin at jamonfraser.com uh so you know not only is 300 kind of significant because it's a number that's round and could be celebrated but it marks the uh, the last episode before my book is launched so uh, this book, The Self-Permission Method, How to Succeed in Life Without Using Self-Discipline, is is out. I mean, you, you can actually get it now. You could find it on Audible or Spotify, just on the DL. Um, I've advertised a March 1 launch date because that's when I'll have the paperback. But if you can't wait for that, you, you probably can actually already find it. So, so much for all the big fanfare of a, a hard launch date. But it's it's out there, and and look, I got my first negative feedback about it this week. So I am doing a book tour around the country, and I've given the hosts, people people hosting me, I've given them uh, the ability to listen to this book and enjoy it before everyone else. And so I had an email uh, two days ago from someone who I'd given that book to, and and they they were devastated to read it because you know, they've been a client of mine. Um, had an incredible transformation journey and then when they read what I really thought about a few subjects uh, they were devastated they felt that I had made a huge mistake that there were holes all through my argument and that I would offend a lot of people and that people who needed this message would not be brought along the journey because of the way that I talked about it so a very useful pressure test for me to have that happen because um you know primarily i am a, a writer and a professional writer and as such a, an artist so to be about to put my art out into the world i cannot imagine that everyone's going to think it's incredible if, if i did then it can't be art it would be bland and vanilla uh, so for for people to find beauty in it then there there must be the opportunity for people to hate it and feel that it's ugly and that it pushes them to areas they don't want to go 
So specifically, the thing he took exception to was my critique of my own faith and the faith of others in how it relates to this idea of trusting your nature. And so let me say up front, can we stop? Terry, can you, Terry, can you stop the music for a minute? I just need to say something. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Terry, by the way. Terry is me. Uh, if you if you need me to be a Christian in order to receive wisdom from me, then don't read this next book, for heaven's sake, because you won't you won't like it. Because I'm I'm not a Christian. I was. I loved being Christian. I was devoted wholeheartedly to the way of Jesus for most of my life, and it answered all the questions that I asked and made sense for everything that I needed making sense for, and then it didn't. And it was a terribly uh, unsettling and terrifying period in my life of deconstruction when I ventured beyond the world, beyond the walls of where I had been before and how I'd lived my life. And not a single person in my world, and that is literally not a single person, thought I was doing the right thing or were very worried and concerned and upset and and felt let down and betrayed uh, by my questioning my own faith. So it was a tough time, um, and yet I knew in my heart whatever questions I was asking, I was not looking for an opportunity to escape responsibility or to seek rebellion or to be a bad person, that all the desires of my heart were still the same, that I wanted exactly the same thing. I just was not sure about where I was going to find that anymore. And so, you know, you've heard me talk about this in various ways over the years, so for some of you, that's no surprise. For some of you, perhaps the way you've come into my content through various channels, you might be very surprised to hear this. But, um, yeah, the, the primary reason, like I, I can still remember in the writing of this book, and I, I write at five in the morning, that was my rhythm, and I would write in my car. And so I would get up before dawn, I would go get a coffee from the first coffee shop that was open, and I would go sit in my car, um, often somewhere where I could wait for the sunrise and, and see the sun come up as part of my my ritual. And I would write. And I, rem I remember vividly the day that I wrote about Paul and Augustine. And I didn't intend to write about them. I didn't think I was going to be writing about them. But, um, you know, spoiler alert, one of the four ideas in this this self-permission method, you're going to have to have permission granted from yourself by addressing four safety concerns. And the first safety concern is that you don't trust yourself. That's a very dangerous way to be a human. And if you do not trust yourself, you can mask, manage, avoid, dance around that for a certain period in your life. But then midlife, I think it's impossible to get around that. It's a very destructive indictment on your own self to have no trust. And I think my observation, my conviction is that you're unconscious and the best of you, the part of you that has been weighed down under the burden of that mistrust actually fights to be heard and fights through the misunderstanding of that cruel accusation and wants a review of why don't you trust me, what's so dangerous. And so this idea of can we be trusted becomes the central question because lots of people have written about trusting yourself over the years. Yeah, you must trust yourself. That's going to be a really important thing. Hallel Rod, the, the miracle equation, unwavering faith, extraordinary action. Well, how are you going to do that if you don't trust yourself? 
uh, William White Cloud, seven, the, the magician's way says that to trust your natural ability is the only way you're going to achieve magic. Sure, but can you be trusted? He would say, just start now, don't worry about the past, just make it, make a, an effort to trust yourself from here and now. And every time you don't trust yourself, get out of your head, realize your thoughts and feelings aren't real and come back to a state of trust. Um, he's still managing yourself though, so I, I think, yeah, at some point you're going to have to ask this question, can I be trusted? That That is the only logical question. I'm, I'm a very logical person. And things have to make sense to me. I cannot, I cannot be me in if like some people can be them it's like oh, i don't really need to know why i just that's fine that, that yeah good it works i don't want to know why i'm just happy to experience it i've i've never been able to do that and i like that about myself because i think there's always a great answer when you when you're willing to understand why and when you understand why you've got some substance and you can be wholehearted and confident if you understand how and why things work uh, so can you be trusted was the central question. And so I thought, well, no point me just saying, yeah, I think you can, because there are lots of people who've had a crack at that answer over the years. And uh, Paul would be the first, in my opinion. And, and his writings have been so influential in shaping how we all unconsciously think about our own self, our own nature. And Augustine, the, the same. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, for those who don't know, wrote most of the New Testament books, so more than half of them are his. And he was, early on, he was a persecutor of the faith. So he was, uh, he hated the Jewish, the Jewish sect called Christians, and he was a defender of the Jewish faith and felt that um, the followers of Jesus were a dangerous offshoot, and he felt compelled to attack, persecute, kill them. Until one day on the road to Damascus, he was struck off his horse by a blinding light and felt as though he heard the voice of Jesus speak to him directly and ask why Paul why are you persecuting me and in an instant he changed his allegiance and then became a Christ follower and then went on to be an early church father and be instrumental in propagating the faith and building the early church and so his new his writings to the New Testament church um, have become canonized into the Bible and are part of the structure that we still have today so he talks about his own experience of reflection on bad behavior you know, a wretched man that I am. Like, like he says, backtracking a little, he says, you know, I have these experiences where I do the things that I don't want to do, or I don't want to do the things that I do want to do. Like wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of sin? Yeah, so his exploration on his own nature, I do things that I don't like doing. Why do I do that? What's wrong with me? His, his own behavior bewildered him, he says. And so then he, he's left to guess, why do I do this? How could I possibly do this? And his answer is that it seems very, very clear that I have a sinful nature. Part of me is that enmity with God. Part of me doesn't like good, wants bad. And I, I must put that part to death. I have to kill that part. And then I can bring to life the part who is aligned to God. And thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, who's made that available to us through sacrificial death. And so that is the basic tenet of protestant christianity that you can have a new nature if you have faith in christ and accept his sacrifice for your sin for your wrong your bad works done through your sinful nature um, augustine then builds on that and he coins the term original sin because he has the same experience he looks at his own life as a youngster he was hanging around with his mates and they 
there's one specific instance that sticks in his mind as he he's in his book Confessions where he tells about this story and, and him and his mates were stealing pears from a farmer and they didn't need pears they weren't hungry they weren't poor they weren't going to sell them they weren't giving them to other people they just were doing it for the thrill of wrongdoing that's his only take on how he could possibly have behaved in a way that he knew was wrong and so uh, he says in his in his own book, he used to pray, Lord, make me pure, but just not yet. So he had his own sense of conviction that, conviction that he was doing the wrong thing, but he just loved doing the wrong thing more than the right thing. And so he assumed then that there is this part of him that is corrupt and bad. And and he made sense of it by saying, okay, since the fall, when the first people made this decision to follow their sinful nature, then we all have had this born we are born into a sinful nature. That's our natural state is sinful. So both Paul and Augustine would say, no, you can't be trusted. Like, no, that's ridiculous. That's a dangerous way to be a human, to trust yourself. That will lead to death. You must trust God. So that was the world that I grew up in that made sense to me. And I did trust God my whole heart. And I was suspicious around my own nature. That was how to live. That was be a good, be a good person by not being me, but by being Christ-like and by putting to death, through the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Um, so, yeah, couldn't see any gaps in that logic and until when I understand behaviour the way that I do now, I just think, well, if Tony Robbins was there with Paul and Augustine, he'd give him a different framework to think about that. His core needs work would say, well, yeah, it might look like you're a bad person because you did bad things, but what if there's another way to think about this? What if you're a needy person? What if your needs must be filled and if you don't have a high quality way to meet those needs in line with your values, then you'll suck up dirt. You'll do things that embarrass you, disappoint you, hurt you and hurt others, and you'll think that means you're bad. But you are not your behavior. You can separate your behavior from intention and understand why. It doesn't justify or excuse it, but it certainly understands it. So anyway, that exploration into why we do what we do i had to write about that and i had to talk about faith and i had to talk about what happens if you don't trust yourself and then if you have a spiritual narrative that says it's bad to trust yourself and that a good person doesn't trust themselves what does that do for a human being how do you how do you show up in the world uh, and I, I wrote one particularly well damning line in the book just mute this if you can't handle something damning about christian faith but I think, in my experience, that many people, the worst part of them is their faith. Like when you talk to them about sport or food or their kids or work, there's a spark in their eyes, but it all has to be subservient to this idea that we can't trust ourselves and that there's something bad. We're all going to die in hell unless we accept faith, accept um, the sacrificial death of Christ. And it gets weird and you're not having a rational conversation with them. You're having a strange conversation, a fear-based conversation. I don't think that produces good humans. It's not loving. So I, I said, look, I think there's a better way to think about this. And uh, Shakespeare's line um, in Hamlet, to thine own self be true. That is how I live my life. So the biblical narrative would say, no, you can't do that, even though that sounds like it's from the Bible. It's not from the Bible. That's from Shakespeare. Um, you know, the biblical 
imperative would be do not trust your own heart, trust in God. That's what you must do. And so when I come and say, no, no, trust yourself because you're fine, that sounds so dangerous and such a, a leaning away from what, what we should be doing as humans. But in my own experience, I look, I observe my own fruit. Okay, what happens when I distrust myself and I trust God? What does that look like in the real world? How do I behave? I would say I behave far worse than I behave now when I trust myself and to thine own self be true. The highest reference point for what I will do and what decisions I will make and how I live is my own heart and I trust my own heart. Now, as an aside, to me, they are one and the same thing, by the way. Trust thine own self and trust God. Yeah, that's, there's no separation in my own experience around that, which... Uh, you know that's a, that's a heresy for sure <laughs> I got confronted by someone in church world recently about the, how far from the orthodoxy I ventured so yeah if you say stuff like that because I'm basically saying well then I am God okay well that's a dangerous thing to say it's my own experience though the connection to the divine my heart and, and the divine heart are one and the same so very safe way to live and it's my experience and I think it's true so yeah, all that to say I'm putting work out into the world and I, I back to sitting in the car in the dark writing about Paul and Augustine going okay Jamin like you know this is going to be problematic for a lot of people don't you are you sure you want to do this and and I don't know how you imagine the process of me writing because the the guy who critiqued my work he critiqued me as though I'd had a brain fart and written something on a page and recorded it on a mic and put it out there. Um, that's not how it actually happens. It's a, it is an incredibly deep and uh, what's I don't even know the word. Is there a word? It, it it has cost me everything to produce this. Like this is to sit there and write. Yeah. What, so one of the chapters in the book is called "Why the Bible Is Wrong." So I'm writing this going. You know that will cost you a fortune to say that, don't you? You, know, you? You're not. That's not cheeky. That's not fun. Like people will will hate you for saying that. And so, nothing I've written in there. I've written lightly. I've gone, oh, whatever. I haven't thought this. I'll just put this out there. You'll see what that thinks. That's a bit cheeky. That's lightweight. No, everything has been critiqued, and I know what I'm doing. Like I am not. I haven't been naive in anything I have said. I meant every word that I said, and it's the best possible way that I, I could say it. Does that mean it's said perfectly? Of course not. There could be better ways of saying it, but through the process of wrestling with these ideas and trying to conceptualize them into words that are palatable, that's that's the best that I could do. And I'm very confident and comfortable with that. So, yeah, I, I know what I'm saying is very difficult and offensive and yet I think it's wonderful and beautiful and loving and kind and I'm compelled I'm compelled because um, I think that is everyone's work to connect themselves to purpose that's bigger than them and not even about them so my hands are tied like I, I couldn't do anything else even if I wanted to when I was in Germany so I I thought I was finished the the draft, I've thought I've finished it a few times, but I thought I'd finished it just before Germany and I'd, um, when we went over there with my family for three weeks in September. But as as I got time and space from it and I was on holiday mode, I realised, oh, actually, I'd like to look at this 
text in with fresh eyes. And so I did and realized there's a bunch of things I could say even better. And so as I'm writing while overseas, I, I woke up in the middle of the night, I felt absolutely compelled to email the manuscript to a friend in Melbourne for safekeeping because up to that point, that manuscript only existed on my laptop. And so if something were to happen to me, uh, if a plane were to crash, if my, my computer were to be stolen, then that manuscript ceases to exist. It doesn't exist anywhere else. And so um, I felt compelled, not, not for my own sake, but for the sake of the work. It felt like there is something coming through me that I am embodying and representing, um, but it, it, must, it must come to the world. I, I feel like I'm sitting on the most important personal development book written in the last 20 years. I understand that's a ridiculously silly thing to say if you have no context, but it is the thing that I believe. And that's, if I don't believe that, then like, what am I doing? But I do believe it, and because I do believe it, then I must say it, because if I believe it and don't say it, what would be the point of that either? So all that to say, like I'm, I'm sitting here about to release some art into the world that I feel very, um, compelled to release and I've done my absolute best to do it and it's a difficult work just like all the work is um, but that's that's the value of art and perhaps who knows what's going to happen next I'm sitting here on the edge of releasing this I don't know how it'll be received and um, it, maybe it will receive terribly maybe it will be take take 50 years for this to be received well and that will be okay too because an artist must come to the point that the art is valuable in itself even if no one enjoys it, even if no one sees it, that it is a value in itself. So to thine own self be true is what I have embodied with this work. I hope you enjoy it, but I don't know that you will. And either way, that's fine. It's still coming out into the world. I'm sending it out into a world where a world where dysfunction is king. Dysfunction makes the world go round. Insecurity is rocket fuel for the majority of the world's citizens. So health is countercultural. People are dissuaded from being healthy. Industry, corporate, government are set up on unhealth and dysfunction, not health. So to write a book about health, about purity, around love, around life, it can't be widely received well. It, it's too it's too destructive to the norms. It's too countercultural. It would deconstruct. So I understand that, but nevertheless, I'm compelled to do that. Um, like, I love running, and I run almost every day, and, uh, and all through summer, I run without a shirt on. And not everybody loves me running without a shirt on, which is strange. I don't really understand. I, I'm not trying to. <laughs> I just love it, right? And I got a few people that every time they see me run without a shirt on, go out of their way to make sure to. Tell me to put a shirt on that no one wants to see me running without a shirt on but i just tell them every time it's out of my hands like it's too late <laughs> i've nailed my colors to the mast i am who i am and this is how i live my life and so i run in summer without a shirt on and that's all that's going to be said about that so you can like it or not like it you can look or you can look away but if you turn up the park run in goulburn you will see me without a shirt on and that's how it's going to be. So, <laughs> ah. so let me just give you a, a snippet into this book. If you're still listening, you haven't clocked off already. 
Uh, Here's a central theme to zoom out from this work. So more courage, less fear is seen as real wisdom for motivation, but it's ridiculous, doesn't make any sense because every cell in your body is hardwired for protection. So you're just gonna override your natural order and just feel the fear and do it anyway. Okay, good luck with that. And to be fair, you can actually do that for a season of your life, Uh, but it requires you to use energy against yourself and it requires you to steal future energy from yourself. So it's to go against yourself. And you, you can do that when you've got energy to waste, which is when you're young. But you get to midlife and you don't have energy to waste. I, I love talking to exhausted people for this very reason, because exhaustion is a wonderful gift. And it's still, it's not an inevitable decision maker, but I think it simplifies your life. And if you listen to David Goggins, he would say exhaustion is an illusion and you've got no idea what you're actually capable of, so just turn that off and keep going anyway. But if you do that and you're already exhausted, okay, energy's got to come from somewhere. So you are further stealing from yourself and and therefore you are debilitating your future self. You're weakening your future every time you steal from resources that aren't allocated for today. It's a very unkind thing to do to yourself. So I I love exhaustion because it kind of simplifies. And if you really listen to exhaustion, it says, okay, enough. We're done here. Actually done. Great. So whether it's practical or possible to do something else doesn't really matter. You must because this thing's dead and you can't keep doing it. So great. I think that's a beautiful metaphor for what happens in the midlife season. The exhaustion of fighting against yourself. And that's a window of opportunity for your unconscious to get your attention and have a conversation specifically around safety and the misunderstanding of safety because you often the misunderstanding of safety is like you've got this nanny state parent you've got someone who wants to wrap you in cotton wool who's fearful of the wrong things and doesn't want you to live your life so they shouldn't want you to be safe that's a misunderstanding because safety is love and when you understand that to be safe is sustainable so what's it profit you if you go out and die and you try something and it destroys you so much more useful to be able to do do something that is sustainable and safe and successful at the same time. Um, so there are four things you'll have to address inevitably, universally, that no one escapes this in the midlife season. You'll have four things that are really dangerous and that's what your unconscious would love to talk to you about and make sure that your success is safe moving forward. So one of those four things, I won't give you all four, you'll have to read the book, but one of those four is is gamification. And that is to understand that inevitably you will have found yourself caught up in games that, that aren't suited to you, games that other people have invited you, other games that other people have told you to play. They're not good for you, then that you have no chance of winning these games. And so if you consistently have an experience of losing the games that you're playing, you will feel like a loser. And that's a very unsafe way to be you. It's very discouraging, very demotivating. The disillusionment and depression that comes from feeling like a loser is catastrophic. So you've got to get some wins on the board. So um, to, to take stock of the games you're playing and to understand what you what games you're currently involved in and, and with courage and kindness, exit those games and lean into games that are more suited to you, games that are more intuitive, more in line with who you are and your essence. And then not only that, but to learn the rules of those games. No point turning up to the right game if you don't know the rules because you can't have a winning experience. And all games have rules. All games have an idea of what's the point, what are we doing here, what are we aiming for, what is a foul, what are the boundaries, what's the time on the clock, 
how many people are involved, how does this game work. Um, but one more subtle piece, once you've gamified, and you might still be wondering, yeah, I feel like I know the games I'm playing, uh, but you will also have to rank those games in order of priorities because you're not just playing one game. You are involved in multiple games, as evidenced by the fact that you have multiple roles. People know you in different ways. You'll have different nicknames in, in, in certain circles. You have different history with certain people. You have different expectations on you in, by different people based on the roles you have and the relationships that you occupy. So if you consider that all games are equally important, well, you don't have the energy to treat all games as equally important. That's not going to work. Games will collide. And if you don't know the order, well, then the loudest game dominates and that might cause the more important games to suffer. And then you win at one game, but then lose at the ones that really matter. And then your world becomes unsafe again and you'll get thwarted. And thwarted you will, by the way. That's the fun of this. The midlife season, your unconscious has a play at actually driving you to a halt, pulling the handbrake on, pulling fuses out, getting up in your face, agitating, annoying, resisting. That's When you get that and realize that's love and you don't need to fight against yourself, all you need to do is listen, that's where the fun starts. So uh, an example about ranking games, uh, Catherine was wrestling with this, this this very week, which is probably why it's on my mind. Um, so this year for her is is really the year of the artist. So she is an exquisite artist and it's it's delightful watching her expression come out in, in drawings and paintings that she's doing. And it's something she's always dabbled with, but it's always come at the end of the day or when everything else is done. And as is often for mothers, mothers go last. And so it's typical that there's not a lot of time left for art, if any. And so this, this year in particular, the real message from herself is, no, no, art, this is the year of the artist. So art is really important. But the challenge for her was, well, how important is it? That's a really good question. What, what takes precedence? Because she's got a lot of games she's playing. There's a lot of requirements. She wears a lot of hats. Um, you know, God knows I'm not an easy boss to work for. I, I am very demanding. I, I think my stuff's always more important. <laughs> just, it's just the level of intensity I play. It's not fair, not true. No way is it true. But, but if, because I'm so clear about what I want, then I take up all the available resources until there are none left. So for her to be the artist, she has to create boundaries around what I can ask of her and when she's available. Previously, she's been available wherever. We live in the same house. Uh, yes, we, that's no surprise. Um, but it just means that I can use her to help grow this business and do the things that I require whenever I want. So all that to say, that's a very dangerous way for her because if this is the year of the artist, that's the most important game. Well, if she doesn't put clear boundaries around that, it will end up at the end. So for you to consider that too, what is this year for you? What's the most important game? What are the rules of that game? And where does it fit in the hierarchy of the other games that you play? And how will you communicate that to your world? Because you will have to let them know. Otherwise, people with dominant personalities and clear ideas and historical expectations on you will steal from you and, and draw you into their games. So I explain that idea and, and go deeper into that in the book. If that whets your whistle. So my intention is to put this out to you as a very valuable resource to solve a very important problem at a very particular stage of life. And I don't think 
uh, there's anything else out there like this to solve this problem in this way. So there we go. Speaking of resources that are valuable and, and worthwhile, here are the top of the list of the things that I find myself recommending most to others and being drawn back into myself. So number one, uh, the biblical series by Jordan Peterson. It, it is a series of lectures. I think there's seven, maybe there's more. On It's on YouTube. He recorded these six years ago. And uh, it's intense because he is intense, uh, but there is nothing like it in the whole of the internet. And if you uh, have ever considered studying philosophy or psychology, then uh, you could do no better than to dive into his biblical series. It is an expose of how to think and what to think and why to think about all, all matters of human, the human being, where we've come from, where we're going. And he is in flow for 98, 99, maybe 100% of the time he's delivering that. He does not take a breath. He even struggles. Like he can tell he's thirsty and he brings the water up to his mouth, but he can't find where he could possibly take a sip and so often he'll drink mid word or mid thought and just keep going he does not take a breath there is no pause until he breaks for questions at the end it's it is exquisite and and i don't know that perhaps perhaps it's possible i'm not sure how i don't think it would be possible to be ready to receive everything he's saying in one go it's just so dense but it is a resource to keep coming back to again and again and again and uh, to let it wash over you you can you can engage it different ways I, sometimes i just have it playing and i'm deliberately not paying attention to it and allow allow his words to wash over and just allow my unconscious to draw in little tidbits other times i'm very conscious and i just digest it in short bits um, but that is a resource so if you haven't come across that look up the biblical series by jordan peterson on youtube uh, in terms of books uh, the Four Agreements, Don Miguel Ruiz. That is a book of wisdom. It says that on the subtitle. So I, I agree. There is nothing better. It is precise. It is sharp. It is insightful. It is the best, the best book uh, ever written about the subject of the words that shape our lives and our part in that. Uh, I think Awaken the Giant Within is Anthony Robbins' best book. And... If you're new to the personal development space, I think it's it's like this incredible owner's manual where you realize there's a whole bunch of levers and buttons that you can activate in your own being that change all kinds of things about your experience of life, which is stunning. If, if you don't know that you can actually affect your experience of life, if you think you're just sailing through life and life is happening to you, you read that book, you're like, oh my goodness, this can position me in the driver's seat. It's stunning. It is breathtaking. It, again, it's dense. It's a big book. Lots of stuff in there. But it's one I keep coming back to, keep recommending. I think he said it first and said it best in so many of the ideas that I have built upon. Um, and similarly, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, both that book and uh, Awaken the Giant and Four Agreements. They're, they're written 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, it's the seven habits of highly effective people just foundational ideas for how to do well at life how to be good at being you the power of intention by wayne dyer that's right up the list when when i was questioning my faith and felt lonely and alone that was my bible that was what drew me back into spirituality that was what connected me to god again 
and in all the most beautiful ways. I just adore that book and I think I, I adore Wayne. What an ex exquisite human being. So just felt that was important to remind you of those resources if you haven't already got into them. Uh, all right, there we go. I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to play a little musical interlude just to sum up my experience of this moment in my own journey. And uh, yeah, I'll see you on the other side of this book launch. Welcome to the planet Welcome to existence Everyone's here Everyone's here Everybody's watching you now Everybody waits Dare you to move, dare you to move 